Well, let's, let's turn our attention to the Word of our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 33. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, I want to look at the Lord's Supper on the horizontal level. By that I mean most often we probably think of the Lord's Supper on the vertical level, right? Meaning our relationship with Christ, and that's very appropriate. First and foremost, that is what we ought to think about. But there, there is also a very important a horizontal aspect to the Lord's Supper that deals with our relationships to one another, how we treat each other, how we respect and care for one another. Our relationships in the family of God play a critical role in our relationship to God. Now I want to dive into the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning, and I want to get really practical on what it means to come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner in terms of our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to read this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 33. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. <clears throat> For I received, the Lord, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. <clears throat> Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of our God. Father, would you please bless us now. Father, as, as we will break in a few moments and share in these uh, symbolic 
things that point to your, your son's body and blood. I pray now that, Lord, you would break the bread of life, your word, to us. In the name of Jesus, we say and pray. Amen. So let's look at what's going on here in 1 Corinthians. Um, the church here uh, is a church that Paul actually planted around 50 A.D. And, and he actually spent quite a bit of time there, 18 months Paul spent here at the church in Corinth. And, and how they got this way, we don't know. But the church of Corinth, it, when Paul is writing, has some major problems. There's some major issues that need to be addressed in the church. This church was very divided. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, For it has been reported to me that there is quarreling ab- among you, my brothers. They were divided over lots of different things. They were divided over which church leaders they were following. Some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. Some said, I follow Christ. In chapters six through uh, chapter six, verse one through eleven, we learned that apparently some of the members were going to court suing other church members. Uh, there was a division in the church over whether or not a Christian could eat meat that had been offered in sacrifice to a false god, and then you know that meat would be taken to the market and sold. And you know the the Christians who felt like their faith was strong were like, there's no gods. I, it doesn't bother me one bit to eat this meat. But there are other Christians who, were, who struggled with that, and they felt like it was a sin to eat it. And so, you know, the, the, the ones with a strong faith were trampling over the ones with the weaker faith. There, there was uh, division the over the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts were being abused at the church in Corinth. As a matter of fact, this great teaching on the spiritual gifts is largely a rebuke against the way they were being practiced and exercised at the church in Corinth. And, and, and what some of the believers thought were some of the more exotic uh, gifts, uh, they were imagining those to be more honorable. So if I got this miraculous gift, and, well, you have the gift of cleaning the bathrooms after church, you know. I speak in tongues, and all you can do is clean the bathroom. And so they were some of the members were feeling superior to the others. So the church of Corinth had some serious issues. There's, there are others also, but you know this brings up a, an important point. Being a church never has and never will mean that we are not going to have problems. The question is, how do we struggle with problems, issues, sins, as they arise within our body. It's not if they will arise, it's when. And then, are we going to to handle things, are we going to treat issues in a biblical and loving, Christ-centered manner? Paul, he lists all these issues, and I want you to see what he does. He uses the gospel to address his to address each one of them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he reminded them, because this is what he's going to do, he's going to surgically apply the gospel to these issues. He said, I determined when I was among you to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. 
the practical solution, at least part of the practical solution to every problem in the church is that we appropriately grasp and apply the gospel and its implications to our lives and to our conduct. We come to our text here in chapter 11 and and a problem had arisen. Some problems had arisen around the Lord's Supper. We just read in verse 17 and 18, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, it's not for the better. Like he's basically saying it would be better if you weren't even celebrating the Lord's Supper. Isn't that something to say to a church? Like you're, you, the way you are doing this, this, this is working out for your worse. In the, in the first place, when you come together, verse 18, I hear there are divisions among you. And in, the, in verse 20, he just comes right out and says it. When you come together, this is not the, don't, don't even call this the Lord's Supper, what you're doing. You, you see, we see, one of the first things we see here is that coming to the Lord's table as a divided church is not a healthy thing. It's not a good thing. Among their members was a real sense of selfishness. They had turned the Lord's Supper into, well, along with the Lord's Supper, they would celebrate um, what, what's called love feasts. And they were fellowship meals. The church would have a lot like the fellowship meals we were have. And in a large part, they were good things. But here at the church in Corinth, they were, along with the Lord's Supper, they were attaching this love feast. And the, and the whole thing was really getting out of hand. I mean, it's almost, you get the sense it's almost like, you know, when the teenagers get left home while the parents go out of town and they invite their friends over and have a party. Uh, the wealthy people are coming, bringing sumptuous food. Meanwhile, the poor people are going hungry. Nobody's waiting. It's just, it's just you know, everybody looking out for their own selves. Some people are getting drunk. Paul said by carrying on in this way in verse 22 that they were despising the church of God. And they were taking the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup of the Lord, in an unworthy manner. And Paul says by doing that, they're eating and drinking judgment to themselves. You realize we were talking in our Sunday school this morning about how the Lord, in our obedience, He calls us to do a lot of things. We're called to obey the Lord. But you know, the Lord uh, doesn't just look on whether or not I am outwardly obeying Him. Yes, we are to obey the Lord in what we think, say, and do. But did you know that the Lord also looks on your heart? The Lord requires truth in the inward Parts, And so it's very possible that you could come here today, and, and I pray none of us do, but it's possible that one or some of us, we could come to the Lord's table and outwardly, oh, we're bowing our head for prayers, we're hearing the word preached, we're, we're taking the elements, but in reality, because of the state of our hearts, doing this will be a sin. I'll talk about that more in a few minutes. What's interesting, and this was really pressed home to me this week as I thought about it, this whole passage about examining yourself when, you're, when you come to the Lord's table, 
uh, to make sure you're coming in a worthy manner. From the standpoint of this passage, first and foremost, this was about our relationships on the horizontal level. How were your relationships with your brothers and sisters? I do think it's a very fair thing to say that our relationships on a horizontal level can be a very good window into the state of our relationship with God on a vertical level. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There was another church in the New Testament that was having trouble. In the church at Philippi, division had arisen between two women, both of whom had been an incredible helps to Paul and his ministry when he was in Macedonia. And, I mean, contention between these two women in the church. The pastor gets like, Paul tells the pastor, listen, you need to help these women get over this and come back together. But listen to this. Some of the best um, Christological teaching we get in the New Testament comes in Philippians chapter 2. And and right before that great passage, Paul says in verse 3 and 4, speaking to a church family. Right? Speaking about our relationships with one another. Speaking about the importance of unity in a church body. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This gets right down to the heart of what was happening at Corinth, doesn't it? When the church came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they were coming together selfishly. They they were counting their own selves as more significant than others. Right? What what they were doing, this is why Paul's become so indignant and saying, listen, you might as well not even be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Because the way they were doing it was in the very, very opposite very opposite of the gospel. In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you see the greatest man, worthy of the highest praise, pouring himself out for others, counting others as as more significant than himself, putting the interest of others ahead of his own. What about us? I want to be practical, which means we might have to be a little messy. But what about us? It's very hard for us. It's very hard for you and me in the age of expressive individualism to live out our Christian lives in a way that puts the interests of other people before our own. That runs completely in the opposite of direction of, the, of everything the sinful human heart says and everything our culture says. This is it's hard, y'all. It's hard all the time. So let me ask you this. How do you view the church? 
Do you view the church as a means of having your needs, your needs and desires met? Does the church does, does the church exist to meet your needs? Or do you view the church more like a family? Do you know what the difference is between a grocery store and a family? Well, I hope so. <laughs> but, you know, a, a, the grocery store caters to your needs because they want the money that you have in your pocket. Right? Chick-fil-A, they'll bend over backwards, my pleasure, while they're doing it, right? All because they want that money, right? That's a consumer relationship. A family is, is different. It's different by nature. It's an organic um, it's an organic relationship of love. Your family doesn't exist to cater to your needs, right? You know, in a family, a family is a place where it's something you, you are part of. It's something you belong to. You receive love, you give love, right? There's this reciprocal coming together-ness. You receive, you receive report, uh, support and you give support. Church is designed to function more like a family than a grocery store. You belong. You love and you are loved. You serve and you are served. The church doesn't exist for any of us to be at the center. We exist so that Christ would be at the center. We, ex- we exist as the church to worship him together. And when Christ, is this, when Christ is at the center, if Jesus is at the center of church life for you, you're not coming here to get your needs net, met. You come here because you have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. His love has drawn you here. We come together as not to have our needs met, but because he deserves our worship. And I just want to, I mean, just this is like, by the way, I believe what I just said. But you want to know the brilliance of the wisdom of God in the gospel? Is when we worship him and when we live in our personal lives and our life with him at the center when we live that way, that's what meets the deepest needs of our soul. It's living in accordance to His will. With Him at the center. With Him, not me, the object of my worship. That's what meets the truest and deepest needs of our soul. Alright, let's get practical with this. In our life together as a, as a church, every aspect should be not my name, but Christ's. Not my kingdom, but Christ's. Not my will, but Christ's. Easier said than done, right? No, I don't think any of you will disagree with me. I won't disagree with me either, but sometimes, I mean, quite honestly, Matt's will wants to get in there. 
And sometimes Matt wants to take a little bit of Christ's kingdom and make that, a, I, I want my name on that thing, you know. If we're just being honest, sometimes we, 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 sometimes we struggle with this, maybe in different ways. Let's look here for a couple of minutes. What are some things that cause division in the church? What are some of the things that can cause division in the church? Number one, personality differences. One of the ways you can tell God has a really good sense of humor is by the variety of personalities that he's created. Amen? You know, if you can't say amen, say ouch, right? (laughs) Um, But you know, it's part of the beauty of God's design. I think even here in our small church family, we have so many different people from from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different geographic areas, you know, different ones of us have landed here in Tifton. All sorts of of differences among us, different interests and different personalities, and yet that's part of the beauty of God's plan to, to bring us together. In Christianity, we celebrate these differences because Christ's love leads us to love each other and bear with one another's shortcomings. Now, I don't want to see any hands raised, but if you're just honest, don't raise your hand. (laughs) If you're honest, aren't there certain types of personalities that just rub you wrong? And you just almost can see them coming, like you don't even know the person yet, but you're like, oh my word. You know, I mean, probably we all have that. Can you imagine if Jesus was just kind of dividing us up between the kind of personalities he liked or preferred or the ones that got on his nerves? And you know why you ought to be patient and long-suffering towards... I mean, just take the... take. Just assume in a church family there will be personalities and some you'll gravitate towards, some you're kind of like... I really have to work to appreciate that person and love them and and spend excessive amounts of time with them. But you know why you ought to... (coughs) Why you need to be patient with those people. You know why, don't you? How do you know you're not the person everybody kind of, like, here they come? (laughs) You you want people to be patient with you. Like, even if you're a well-rounded person, this might be a blind spot in your life and people are like... Man, sometimes I've got to put up with him, right? Selfish preferences are also things that can divide churches. You know, and we were talking about this a minute ago. If you approach the church as an entity that exists to meet your needs, then here's what's going to happen. Let's just say this week the church is meeting your needs. Ah, everything's going great. The church, the pastor, all the people in it, They are your allies. But the minute they stop meeting your needs, they're your enemies. You say, if this is about you, that's how it's going to work. Instead of coming to the church seeking to have our preferences met, each one of us, each one of us, first and foremost, ought to be asking, what are Christ's preferences for our church? Right. I mean, you want to put your preferences up there? 
Jesus' preferences and mine. I want mine. No. And beyond first and foremost seeking Christ's preferences in our life together as a church family, the Bible teaches that we should be seeking the good of our brothers and sisters before our own. There's a bunch of places we could turn for me to show you this, but let me just show you one. Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Hear this. Well, okay, I'm going to call myself Christian, but Jesus didn't come to please himself, but now I'm here in the church. It's about me and my preferences. It's incongruent. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The last area I'll talk about for a few minutes, I'm sure there's more, and in many ways we could break this down, but the last way I want to talk about here for just a moment that can cause divisions in the church are sometimes when we commit sins against one another within the church. Now, guys, I wish this wasn't so. I wish it wasn't possible, but it is. You know, oftentimes, don't you find it so? It's in, with the people you love the most that we often hurt the most. And so, honestly, I think if we just come here and play church, you just check in for an hour every Sunday and check out, and you're really, you don't have any skin in the game, you're really not connected, you're really not vulnerable, you don't have anything on the line, you're really not plugged in, you don't worry about it, you're not going to get hurt. I won't be surprised if you'll be the one complaining about other things, everything people do, but, but no, I'm, just, I'm being a little facetious to say, when we are vulnerable when we are really connected, when our relationships really do mean something, living our lives together will be messy and there will be times when we hurt each other. There will be times when we fail each other. I will fail as a pastor. I will sin as a pastor. You will sin against your brothers and sisters. And sometimes, oh my goodness, you know, I mean... Lots of us here, not everybody, but not only you're a member of the church family, but other members of your biological family are members of the church family too. So you have this like double opportunity to, you know, you're with them a whole, they're your brother, you know. My wife is my sister in Christ. We're, we're co church members along with you guys. And so you say, Um, in my job at Turner's Furniture, um, I'm involved with a, a lot of interviewing and hiring. And all the time, especially if I think I'm going to hire somebody, I'm always, I'm telling, because I really do believe in the company and I love working there. Now, it has its days, right? And so I'll be telling people about the job, about, and then it's always, it's always kind of funny but I'll tell the good things about the job, and then I'll, okay, now, I don't want you to think everything I just told you is true, 
But let me tell you the hard things too. And there's, you know, some of y'all can bear witness to this. I'll say, listen, if you work here, you know, you're gonna, this is stressful, this is hard, this is hard. And, you know, when someone's in a job interview, they just want the job. Oh, yeah, I love all the really bad things you just said. Just give me the job. How soon do I get paid, you know, right? But I say, you know, I believe we're a really good company, but we're not perfect. And that's quite a bit true of the church, isn't it? There are some wonderful, amazing benefits to being a part of the church of Christ. And yet, we aren't perfect yet. But one day we will be. One day we will be. Do you realize in those moments when we fail each other or when we sin against one another, that those moments, if we handle them right, become powerful opportunities to display the gospel? What do you mean, Matt? Well, you know, if I sin against you and, you know, now... It's possible I could um, wrong you intentionally or maybe not even fully understanding it, but you say, Matt, you hurt me. Matt, I called you and you didn't call me back. You, I don't think that's happened recently, so I'm not thinking of anybody specific, but, you know, say I let you down. And I'm like, no, I could handle that one of two ways. I could, I could make up a lie, an excuse. I could just, you know, but, if I, what, but what if I say, Oh, man, I'm sorry. I apologize. And that's a little example, but let's make it something a little more, a a serious offense between two church members. And one of them goes to you and says, hey, you've hurt me. You've sinned against me. You know, and then you can either let that little uh, self-defense attorney kick in and start arguing all the reasons why you're not guilty of anything and you never have been because you're perfect. You're spotless. That's what the little inner defense attorney we all have will say. Or you could just humble yourself and say, I I am sorry. I apologize. And see, when you have that cycle that, like, if we live together, if there's any closeness, if there's any connectedness, we're going to be having this offenses happen. And then there should be this cycle of confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Confession, repentance, and forgiveness. A picture of the gospel just constantly going. You know, I know that some of us in this room have been hurt by the church or by a church. Maybe even your family has been harmed by some church member or maybe even a pastor. I want to encourage, if that's you, I want to encourage you today to lay down the burden of unforgiveness and bitterness. Bitterness and unforgiveness will rot your soul. I understand technically, technically, it's really not possible to forgive somebody who's not asking for forgiveness. In a, in a sense. 
They're not repentant. They're not confessing. They're not asking for forgiveness. Technically, you can't give them forgiveness. But you know what you can do? You can have a forgiving spirit. You know what a forgiving spirit means? You know, when, I grant, when someone wrongs me and I forgive them, that means I'm not going to require them to repay me for the wrong. I'm not requiring, I'm not going to exact revenge or justice. I'm forgiving. It's like if you get a debt forgiven. You owed $100, but they forgave the debt. They're not going to require you to pay that $100 back. Well, the spirit of forgiveness says, I am not going to be the debt collector on this wrong that has occurred against me. I'm going to give it to the Lord, and I'm going to let him deal with it, and I'm going to trust in him because I don't want bitterness and unforgiveness consuming my soul. Brothers and sisters, when we come to the Lord's table on the horizontal level, you know, you come into a room like this one where we are today and you look around and what you see is, man, I, I don't deserve to be here one bit. Not a single one of us deserves the blessing of grace that allows us to come to the Lord's table. But we have been invited to humble ourselves, to come in a repentant manner, humbly coming as the Lord's little children. And partaking in this supper that's meant to strengthen and encourage our faith. And bless us, yes, as we think on the vertical level about our relationship with Christ. But also what a blessing it is that we are coming together on a horizontal level. And what we are doing together is meant to strengthen and bless and encourage us. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this grace and this blessing. Lord, would you please be with us as we continue. In the name of Jesus, amen.